Isaiah 52, reading from verse 13. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished by you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind, so that he, so shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them, they see, and that which, have not, that which they have not heard, they understand. Who has believed what we have heard, what he has heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, and like a root out of a dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Father, we Thank you for the reading of your word. We pray that you'd speak to us, Lord. This is your word, and so you should speak. Not of me, Lord, but of you alone, so that your people would be fed, they'd be encouraged, they'd be built up. And Lord, that uh, we together can be conformed to the image of your Son. In Jesus Christ, our Lord's name. Isaiah 53. You know, so many times we read it. Oftentimes for uh, the Remembrance Hour, uh, probably one of the most read chapters. And someone said, some expositor would say that this Isaiah 53 is the Holy of Holies of Isaiah. In fact, of the 80 references that you find of Isaiah in the New Testament, most of them are from this chapter, chapter in Isaiah, Isaiah 53. And as we read this so many times, we are confident that the prophet is speaking about Jesus Christ, isn't it? That this is about Jesus Christ. But that is not so. Not everybody thinks, not everybody believes that this is about Jesus Christ. And and so that, uh, you remember the time when the eunuch was going from Jerusalem back to Ethiopia, uh, um, on his way back to Ethiopia, uh, Philip was told by the Holy Spirit in Acts 8 to get up out of Jerusalem, go on the way to Gaza, to the desert, and he would be told what. And as he gets there, he finds this Ethiopian convoy, as it were, returning back from Jerusalem back to uh, Ethiopia. And the Holy Spirit tells him, go along and see what's happening. And as he gets there, he, he realizes that this Ethiopian eunuch is reading from Isaiah 53. So Philip looks at him and, and says, do you understand what, he, what you're reading? And you know what he says. He says, how can I unless somebody tells me? So uh, Philip says, you know, can I, can, I, can I come in? Can I come up? And he gets invited and he sits out there. And the passage that was being read is that he was like a lamb led to a slaughter in his humiliation. His judgment was taken away. And the Ethiopian eunuch asked this question, who is the prophet speaking about? Is he speaking about himself or about someone else? That's a good question. Because we want to know that question. We want to know who is it that the prophet is speaking about? Who is the prophet speaking about? Because that's a much debated question. The, the Jews would tell you that it's Israel. 
And for good reason. We, we will see why. Why do we say it's Israel? We'll look at that, all right? They, they, they say it's Israel who is the servant of the Lord. In fact, the, some of the scholars would say that this is what they call the Deutero-Isaiah. Because, you know, Isaiah wrote this 700 years prior to Jesus Christ being born on this earth. And so scholars look at that and say this is too much of coincidence, prophecy, too much of coincidence. And so Deutero-Isaiah is something that was written on later after the fact of and sewn in into this book. But it's not much of a debate for us, you know, who's been, who've been gripped by the Lord Jesus Christ. Because F.B. Meyer says as well, he says, there is only one brow which this crown of thorns will fit. And so we have two questions before us, at least three questions, all right? The first question is, who is the prophet speaking about? We want to see why do we believe it is Jesus Christ? Not because, um, you know, we've been raised on that, and so we look at that. But the second also, this rhetoric question in 53 and verse 1, who has believed our report? Why is it that such a great work has been done, but it doesn't seem like not too many people believe that? And the third question we want to ask is, so what? What does that mean to me? What does that mean to you? It's important because nothing about God's word is ever written without it applying to us, all right? So we want to know that. And as we read Isaiah, it becomes apparent that there is a primary purpose and there is a prophetic purpose. The primary purpose is this, that the nation of Israel would be restored. You see, they had gone away holding a, 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 a you know, uh, uh, Baal and the other gods and, and Isaiah's message was listen come back come back to God and this restoration of Israel was important and that was the primary reason and yet in the prophetic reason we see that this nation of Israel fails and that there is the servant of the Lord who fulfills the will and the desire of the Lord. And so that's the connection we want to make. And so what I want to do is as we look at this passage that we read, the three things that we want to look. One is the context. Look at the context. Context will look at the song of the servant. And the second will look at the contrast. The contrast that's evident in this passage, there is that phrase called the sprinkling of the nation. So what does that mean? And the third is the confidence, the steadfastness of the saints. What, is, what does that mean to us? Why is this word there and how does that apply to us? And so the first one is the context, the, the song of the servant. And when you read Isaiah, it becomes apparent there are a lot of poetic passages uh, and of which there are at least four of what is called the servant songs. The servant songs. Four servant songs. And these servant songs are about an introduction to this servant of the Lord so that we know, get to know about who the servant of the Lord is. Isaiah 42 is about the introduction of the servant. And you get to Isaiah 49, it talks about the suffering servant, about the work that he does, the success. And the Isaiah 50 is the contrast, and Isaiah 52 is the suffering and the success. Right? So there's an introduction there and goes on to say what the servant has done. 
some people consider even Isaiah 61 as another servant song, even though the phrase servant song is not mentioned there. But the, the consequence of what the servant does and the success of that is the song we read in 61. And so as you look at this, there are the, uh, the, it becomes apparent that Isaiah is about the message of restoration. So when you look at Isaiah, this is how we divide it, right? I'm not sure if you've done this outlines before, but we need to understand this. We need to understand in summary what the message of Isaiah is all about. So if you look at Isaiah, how many chapters does it have? 66. Okay, it's got 66 chapters, and it ties in extremely well with the 66 books of the Bible. And Isaiah can be divided into two parts. The first part is the message of judgment. Isaiah is saying that unless you come to God, God is going to send, is going to punish you. And that appears in the first 39 chapters. And 39 chapters represent for us the 39 books of the Old Testament. And then you have from verse chapter 40 to 66, which is the message of hope. It's interesting how that got divided, but this is what it is. The first 39 chapters is about the coming judgment of God upon the nation of Israel. And the nation of Israel were told, listen, unless you give up going after these gods, unless you come back to God, God's going to send you away in exile. And they would not believe. You know why? Because the leaders thought, God's given us this land. He, he's promised us this land. He's not, he's not going to take it away. We, we have Jerusalem, the Zion, the city of God. Then we have the temple. Why would God take that away? And con- though Isaiah continued to keep saying that, they would not listen. But even in spite of that, God promises a blessing. When you read Isaiah 6, this is what you see towards the end. We see that there is a stump left. A stump that is left in Isaiah 6. And you read through, get to chapter 11. When you get to chapter 11, we see that out of that stump, the root of Jesse, there's a branch of David that comes out as a blessing, as to say, listen, there will be a remnant left behind even after the judgment. And 80 years after, the southern kingdom is taken away into exile. And so when you read the first 39 chapters, Isaiah is saying that. And if you were to fit the exile in, you would have to do that between 39 and 40, chapters 39 and chapter 40. Because once you get to 40, this is what it says, Israel, rejoice for your iniquity has passed. Your punishment has been taken away. It's time to celebrate. There's this change in the way Isaiah starts to write from 40. Because it was meant for that this nation of Israel that when they come back from exile, that they would be the servant of the Lord, that they would be the ones through whom the nations would be healed. But we know that wasn't the case, was it? They failed. From 42 to 44, God, as it was, sets a trial court. It's interesting when you read that. Because... God is, people were saying, they come back and they're still angry with God in in a sense. They're saying, listen, if you are, are you greater than the Babylonian gods, really? I don't think so, is what they're saying. And God is saying, listen, I am. 
the Babylonians would come and say, listen, we will take you into captivity because we are, our God is stronger than yours. That was the claim. And so when they come back, they're still thinking this, that, yeah, Babylonian God must be greater than the Jehovah God because we were taken away into captivity. And God says, no, I'm the one who's in control. I sent you away because you were punished for your iniquities. And I'm the one who brings you back. And that trial court ends by saying that Israel has failed. And in 42, Isaiah 42, God introduces his servant, the servant of the Lord, who will be successful, who will not just be the one who will do the will of the, God, will of the Lord, but he del- he's delighted. God delights in the servant. That's the switch that happens. We need to remember. And as you continue on, you get to the end, we see how the servant is successful. We see how the, uh, Israel is restored, how the nations are healed. And it ends the last, from 56 to 66, this is what we see. We see that there are two types of people. One is the seed, the ones who would believe the word of the Lord. And the word, the term seed, we see in chapter 6. And they are the ones who'd be blessed. And the wicked ones who reject the Lord, uh, Lord Jesus Christ on his work or the work of the Messiah, they will be destroyed. So if you look at the um, entire passage and the message of Isaiah, we see, as it were, the switch happening. There is a servant of the Lord up to 39 and the introduction of Israel as a servant of the Lord who fails. But then there is also the servant of the Lord who is successful. All right? And so keeping that in mind, I want you to understand that, that what really surprises these people, as you read the Jews, as it were, is that when they get to this passage that we are looking at, is the surprising twist The surprising twist is this, that this nation of Israel who were unfaithful, they have what is called the blessing of the Lord. God God is saying, I'm going to still bless you. There's going to be this remnant. This stump will be there. And yet you have this faithful servant who does the will of the Lord, who who is the delight of the Lord, and yet he goes through undue suffering and punishment. And it's through that that the restoration of Israel happens. We know why the, holy, why the servant had to be punished unjustly. Because we read in verse 4, as we get there in 53, and verse 4, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, and we esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. So it seems like when, when we read that you know, and apply it to ourselves, it becomes self-evident. We read in uh, Philippians chapter 2, right? We read this, Let this mind be in you, which is also in Christ Jesus, who, existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God something to cling to, but emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant. Taking on the form of a servant. But wait, I mean, uh, I, I gave you the summary, and you think, all right, is that all that we have to go by to say the servant of the Lord is Jesus Christ? I want you to look at the contrast, okay? The contrast. In 52 verse 15, I want you to see that, and he will startle 
or sprinkle, as in your translations. Many nations, kings will stand speechless in his presence, for they will see what they have not been told, and they will understand what has not been heard of them. There's some sort of confusion, right? There seems to be that their nations are startled and kings are speechless. They seem to understand what they've not been told, and the reason is the stark contrast. The contrast is, hey, listen, something's happening here which I can't fathom. What is that? What is that? We want to look at some of the contrasts. So contrast number one, we already touched on that. One is the sinful, the contrast between the sinful servant and the suffering servant. The sinful servant and the suffering servant. From Isaiah 40 to Isaiah 53, we see these two servants coming alongside. We see Israel as a servant is introduced in Isaiah 41. But we already saw that they were unfaithful and they failed. And God introduces his servant in 42. In 42. Interestingly, he is also called Israel. And so if you don't catch the switch, if you don't see the contrast, you might think that the narrative is continuous. But there's a switch that happens. And so as we asked ourselves this one question, this contrast, why is it that the wicked servant is blessed? And why would this faithful, obedient servant suffer? Now that's the that's gripped people. They they try to grapple that. They give ex- explanation as to how Israel has gone through such uh, trials and difficulties. You know, earlier of the, the earlier part of last century and and through history before. But yet, as you read this chapter, we we will see that their punishment does not lead to the healing of the nations. There is a contrast there is there. But also, the other contrast is between Isaiah 6 and Isaiah 53. You know what I'm talking about. You know, Isaiah 6, Isaiah says, woe is me. He, he, he is able to see into the very throne room of God, the Lord high and lifted up. That's Isaiah 6. And then we are seeing here is Isaiah 53, a humble, humiliated, rejected servant of the Lord. We are saying if Isaiah 53 is Jesus Christ, then we have to say Isaiah 6 is also Jesus Christ. Because John 12, is 41, this is what it says. And these things Isaiah said when he saw his glory, that is Jesus' glory, and spoke of him. I don't know if it's gripped your heart. This great vision that Isaiah sees of the Lord high and lifted up is the same Lord incarnate, God incarnate, of Isaiah 53. What a contrast. What a contrast. And so... You know, when we sing that song, can we sing it lightly? Alas, and did my Savior bleed, and did my sovereign die? Would he devote that sacred head for sinners such as I? We are able to, in some way, as we come to remember the Lord, try and bring this bridge in. 
but without the Spirit of God, it's impossible to make the connection of Isaiah 6 and Isaiah 53. And so therefore, most Jews would tell you, or Jewish scholars will tell you, of the two Messiah theory that they have, that these are two different Messiahs. First is the Messiah, the ruling Messiah, who is the uh, son of David. Then in Isaiah 53 is the suffering Messiah, who's the Messiah, the son of Joseph. But I just love it how when you look at genealogies, Matthew brings in this genealogy so beautifully. He starts this way in Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. This is what he says, the book of the generation of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And he ends in verse 16 by saying that he is the son of Joseph and of Mary. Somehow so beautifully bringing in this connection between Isaiah 6 and Isaiah 53. They contrast Difficult for the world to understand, but glorious indeed for us to look at. And then that phrase in that 52 verse 15, which says, And so he shall sprinkle many nations. In some of your translations, it says startle. Sprinkle or startle? You see, which is it? You see, when you look at the word sprinkle, it gives you the imagery of the sacrifice. When you read the Leviticus, uh, book of Leviticus, and you get to where the lepers were cleansed, the bull would be brought to the door of the tabernacle, would be killed, and the priest would dip his fingers into the blood and sprinkle as a form of cleansing uh, the leprosy. And then you get to uh, Ezekiel, you see Clean water being sprinkled as a form of cleansing of all of the transgression. You get to Hebrews, again, there are sprinkling. So we understand sprinkling. We understand that Jesus Christ, his, he sprinkled many nations, that his was the sacrifice, vicarious sacrifice. His was the sacrifice that takes away our transgressions. That his sacrifice would take away yours and mine. And yet we think about this startle. Sprinkle or startle? Startle as an astonishment, as an awe. It says, where they startled, where the nations, where the nations startled and the kings speechless because they looked at the appearance of the this, of this servant. They looked at him and they said, he doesn't look like a man. His visage was so marred beyond that of any man. We were talking about it on Wednesday. We were saying this, this battalion is 600 people that they would, uh, you know, toughened, our, uh, war-toughened people that they would surround. And they were the ones who were badgering, as it were, the body of the Lord Jesus Christ. And when they were brought, and when he was brought out, and Pilate says, behold the man, first of all, it had to be established that that was a man because he was so scourged and flogged. And so were they startled at his appearance? Or were they startled at the undeserving suffering that this servant goes through? Or were they startled and speechless because they understood the graciousness of the work that was done? That they were so thankful and wonderment. Which is it? And I, I try to read up, and I try to understand that. And this is, what, this is my only understanding, that 
This being inspired by the Holy Spirit, he uses a word in Hebrew, which, is, which can be both, startle or sprinkle, and he uses that word intentionally only to give us all those multiple facets of the truth of that, that this is both the sacrifice and that knowing what that sacrifice is, it should startle us, leave us speechless, that the God of Isaiah 6 is the God of Isaiah 53, is the man of Isaiah 53. That through him we should have healing. And so we ask this question, who should believe our report? Who would believe our report? It says there, right, in verse 1, who has believed what he has heard from us and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Such a great work and not many who believe why the suffering? Why is it that there are few who believe? There are people who go away and look at that. And we were some of those in verse 3, verse 4, sorry. It says, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. And we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. You know what it says? He carried our griefs and our sorrows, but we esteemed him stricken of God. What is being said is this, that as he hung on the cross, that's the imagery. I want you to understand, all right? That as he hung on the cross, people wagged their head and walked away. There were others who would stand there and say, and would say he saved others. Why doesn't, he, why doesn't he save himself? And remember the time when he crossed out Eli, Eli, Lama, Sabatania, and people said that, oh, he's calling out to Elijah. Let's see if Elijah will come and save him. The point being is this, saying that God has punished him, this servant who called himself the Messiah, because he, may, because he said he is God. God has not punished him by putting him on the cross, stricken of God and smitten. God is not saving. Let's see if Elijah would. But the truth is right there, isn't it? He has borne our grief and carried our sorrows. In verse 11, it says it again, out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. We ask why the suffering, why the suffering every Sunday morning as we come together. We ask that question. We ask this ourselves this this today, the bitter cup, love drank it all. The suffering. But then, uh, you know, why is it that so few believe? How, how is it that the servant of the Lord accomplishes all this and yet so few believe? You see, in that verse, in verse 1, it says, To whom has the arm of the Lord being revealed? The revelation of the arm of the Lord. There's something about it that must catch our attention. We know the arm of the Lord is an indication of the power of God. In Exodus chapter 6, verse 6, this is what it says. It says, Moses is telling um, about Israel. and says, I will deliver them out of Egypt with my outstretched arm. We use that phrase, at the right hand of God. What's the imagery we get? We think that, you know, there's another throne there next to God. No, that's not what it is. The right hand of God is indicative of power and authority. That's why Jesus says, all authority 
and power is given to me. The power, the authority, that is what the arm of God would indicate to us. But as someone said, when God rolled up his sleeves in Isaiah 53, what was revealed was an ordinary arm. It was a babe in a cattle shed laid in a manger. No wonder it seems in my head as I try to visualize this that angels must have tried to crowd in on that cattle shed just to see that babe, for that was God incarnate lying there as if he was helpless. But the birth of that baby was for the rise and the fall of many nations. To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? It's about the humanity of Jesus Christ, that this servant of the Lord, this Isaiah 6, the God of Isaiah 6, in Isaiah 53, we see him in his humanity. Can you wrap your head around that? The arm of the Lord. And it goes on to say in verse 2, For he grew up before him as a young plant and like a root out of a dry ground. The word literally there is like a sucker plant, as a plant which is, you know, those creepers that that drains away life and it's despised. Nobody wants it. It cuts off because you don't need it. That is how Jesus grew up in a dry land, it says. Nothing of Isaiah 6 demonstrated at this point as he grows up in that irrelevance and that insignificance. This is what Warren Wearsby has to say. When God made the universe, he used his fingers. Psalm 8.3. And when he delivered Israel from Egypt, it was by his strong hand. Exodus 13.3. But to save the lost sinners, he had to bear his mighty arm. Who has believed our report? And that brings us to the confidence that we have, the steadfastness of the saints. The world is unable to see what we have seen. As John says, this things he spoke because he saw the glory of Christ. Brothers and sisters, we are able to speak of this person who has won your heart, won my heart, because we have seen the glories of Christ, haven't we? And that's the confidence that we have. Not because, you know, many times we struggle. We do a lot of work in trying to reach and share with our parents, our friends, our brothers, our sisters, our colleagues, and they don't seem to respond. And we start to think, like, what is happening? The question is, who has believed our report and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? That contrast we need to get. That we who have seen the arm of the Lord being revealed, the glories of Christ who's, that's, been, that's been evidenced in our, in our life, that's transformed our lives, gives us the strength, the confidence to go on in spite of the first. Let me give you two or three examples real quick and, and because we need to understand. One is that of Elijah. Remember Elijah, he, he storms in at a place when it, was, when it was the darkest time in the nation of Israel's life. It was Ahab and the wicked queen Jezebel who were ruling at that time. And, and Isaiah, sorry, 
Elijah stands and says to the king, till I, till I, not, it's not a message from God at that point as you read. It says, till I say, heavens will be shut up and there'll be no rain. And you know what happens, right? I mean, you get to, get to the point when you start to read in 1 Kings 18. He calls in the people to say, okay, it's time to see who is God. And this is what he tells the people. Listen, you have to take a stand. How long will you be between two opinions? If God is God, follow him. If Baal is God, follow him. What they wanted was the benefit of God to give them the land and the promises and all of that. And yet they wanted Baal, who was supposed to be this agricultural God and all of those benefits. Let's get both of them together. Let's have this buffet for ourselves. And God is saying it doesn't work that way. You have to choose. And the saddest part there is that verse ends by saying, and people said nothing. They didn't, didn't matter to them. There was the fire that came, and then there was the storm that followed. Ahab had seen all this, and he goes and reports to Jezebel, and he just so fails because Jezebel at that point is saying, listen, I'm going to, he sends word to uh, Elijah and says, what you did to my prophets, the 850, 400 uh, of uh, Baal and 450 of Asherah, I'm going to do that to you. And Elijah starts to run. Where does he run to? He runs to Mount Horeb or Mount Sinai where God was made manifest. I just love that about Elijah. He's running to the very place. And there he finds himself and God meets him. Not like the time when God met the people of Israel and Moses with fire and earthquake and all of that, but in a still small voice, he meets them. And this is what Elijah had to say. I and only I am left. And God is saying, you're mistaken. I have reserved for myself. Our eyes oftentimes do not see our brothers, our sisters, the work that's happening in their lives. And we pray that, that God would be gracious to reveal that to ourselves, but we are thankful to a God who's in control, a God who bared his arm. Isaiah is another great example. You see, going back to that Isaiah chapter 6, he looks, as it were, he overhears this conversation. Who will go for us? And Isaiah says, pick me, pick me, pick me. I want to go, I want to go. And this is the message that Isaiah gets. The message is this. Listen, hearing they will not hear. They will not understand. They will harden their hearts. This, listen, Isaiah had to speak for 30 long years. There was no national revival that he expected. But he went in the strength, just like Elijah, who went in the strength of what the angels gave him. But he went in the strength of the fact that he saw the glories of Christ. And then you get to our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, in John chapter 12, I want us to turn to that because that's really bringing it down to us. <clears throat> Chapter 12, I'm going to read from verse 37. 
Isaiah 50, uh, and, he, and he quotes Isaiah 53. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. For that, the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah may be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what, what he heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? But he doesn't stop there. He continues on to chapter 6, verse 10. Okay, chapter 6. I want you to remember, he's, he's getting chapter 6 and verse 10. In 39 and 41, it says, Therefore they could not believe, for again Isaiah says, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their hearts, and turn, and I would heal them. And John says, Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him, of Jesus Christ. You know what John does here? He, he brings this Isaiah 53 passage and Isaiah 6 passage and brings them together. And he says, yet people did not believe. Who has believed our report? Yeah, I sometimes feel that if the Lord Jesus Christ were to apply for some of our mission organization, he'd get rejected. He didn't, have, he didn't have great successful stories as we see success being written. Who has believed his report? But the story does not end there, and that is what I want us to understand. I want you to you know, be with me and come to Romans. Romans chapter 9 to chapter 11 is the story of how God is working in Israel. What is the plan of God in Israel? But if you would turn with me to Romans chapter 10. Romans chapter 10, I'm going to read from 15 and 16. How beautifully, how beautifully Paul brings in two of these quotes from Isaiah. And how shall they preach unless they are sent as it's written? How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, who brings glad tidings of good things, but they have not all obeyed the gospel. And now 53.1, for Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? So what John does, he, he combines Isaiah 6 and Isaiah 53, and he brings it together, the glory and the gory. Oh, that's mine, okay? Note that. Then what Paul does here, he takes 52. How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. Uh, you know, that's just the most beautiful, beautiful imagery Isaiah could draw to get their attention because they knew what it meant. It meant the city is all fortified and all intense because there's a siege laid out. But as the watchman looks, he sees this man running through the mountains and the valleys. He's coming running and he's excited and they know that this is something, some great story. And as that comes in, he says, listen, the siege has been removed. Uh, the city has been delivered. That's a beautiful noise, a beautiful message. And, but this feet that has run through those mountains and those valleys is all blistered, but yet that feet is beautiful because it carries the beautiful message of deliverance. That's the imagery. But now think about Jesus Christ who brings this message. He is not just bringing us the message, but he is the message. He is not just bringing us the good news. He is the good news. And look at his feet, that feet that walked on the dusty streets of Galilee, that feet that was kissed by that ill-repute woman in the house of Simon, where tears were shed on her feet and, the, and wiped with that hair, she understood the beautiful feet. But yet to the people who 
were brought this message. They nailed it to the cross. And through that nails, through that death, deliverance comes to his people. And so today we'll look at that beautiful feet, though pierced, and we say so th- we are so thankful that he, the God of Isaiah 6, would bring the good news of Isaiah 53. Because if it's just stopped at Isaiah 6, you and I would be dead, have no entry, nothing at all. The beautiful feet of the servant of the Lord in 52 and 53. But Paul does something more amazing, and he brings it to us. You know what it is? He, as he reads this in 15 and 16, he's drawing attention from the feet of this one who brings the good news to our feet. We are now to be the ones who brings good news. Read that passage. And he says, how, how will they call unless they believe? How will they believe unless they hear? How will they hear unless they tell? How will they tell unless they are sent? We are the ones who are sent, aren't we? We are the ones who are to tell. Because Isaiah could only tell when he saw the glories of Christ. Who among, the world, who among in the world can talk about our God? Only ones who've seen of him. And so the world is yet asking this one question, for whom does the prophet speak about? We have the answer. That our ugly feet, you know, our ugly feet, we think we don't have words to carry. We think that, you know, listen, I can't do that. Someone else needs to do it. I can't do that. But God is saying that ugly feet can become the beautiful feet to, to your neighbors, to your people. Because you're the ones who sent. You're the ones who will tell. You're the ones who, because of whom they will hear. And because they hear, they will believe. That's the word of the Lord. That's the word of the Lord. And so I, in conclusion, I ask myself this. Why is it that so few believe? Why? And I conjuncture this, and I said, maybe there are two reasons. One is a positive reason, and one is a negative reason. And the positive reason is because of the cost it involves, because we did not dilute the gospel. We are saying this is a costly thing to do. You have to deny, you have to give up. And so, therefore, people say, no, that's too costly for me. You see, salvation is, not, is given to us free, but it comes at a cost. If that be the truth, then that's great. We don't want to dilute it. We want to, we want to show that this same God is the God who's won our hearts. And yet I ask myself, why is it that so few believe? Is it because we haven't gone? Is it because we have lived in that community and people don't know that we are the ones who have the message or we have worked in an in a office and they don't know. We haven't said, we haven't spoken. How will they believe if they don't hear? 
There's a term called the evangelophobia. I'm not sure if it's a term which is known, but we have this fear of evangelism, a fear of telling people that you love God, fear of telling people that this God is the God, otherwise there's no other way. We fear losing our friends, but we forget that we're losing our soul. Oh, that our hearts would be gripped, like Jonathan Edwards would say, that he had eternity stamped in his eyebrows. And I also want to talk to all of us, many of us, who faithfully, tearfully pray for their relatives, for their friends, for their parents, for their brothers. We have a God who cares for them more than we ever can. We are called to be faithful. We are called to talk about the God who we have seen who has bared his arm. We, we, we come to that time and that place and say, God, this is not something I can do, but let me be, let me be found faithful in that I come only to you with all my sorrow and all that I, you know, all my hopes, knowing that you, you alone can change, you alone can do it. But let me not be fearful. Let me not be the one who say, oh, I don't want to hurt. We live in such societies where we are worried more about the hurt than the fact we forget that they are going to be hurting more and for eternity. And to us, has the arm been bared? You know how it says there in, in that passage in verse 13 that we looked at, Behold, my servant will act wisely. The word wisely in your thing says prudently, successfully. He, he does that. He is the only one who is able to achieve it. And we are called to emulate this servant, that we would be prudent, we would be wise, we would be successful in the Lord Jesus Christ. He said, he shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. Just as this servant was high, exalted, and extolled, God promises for us who are faithful that we would be the faithful bearers of those good news, that our feet would be seen as good and beautiful feet shod with the gospel of peace till our last breath. May God be glorified. Father, we thank you for your son, for the remembrance of your son as precious to us. What he accomplished, Lord, for us is beyond our understanding. But we have seen the beauty, the glories, the transformation. And so, Lord, to us, you have charged us that our feet be now beautiful as we carry this good news. For there are many who have not yet believed, but we know that you will fill heaven with your people. And we pray that among us would be our friends, our neighbors, our parents, our brothers, our sisters, and the ones we've been praying for, Lord, the ones that, that I and, and, and some of us, many of us here, Lord, have been praying for some specific friends. We pray, Lord, that you'd grip their heart. We pray 
that we would be the ones who'd be the herald of those good news till our last breath. For such has been the transformation because we saw of the glories of God, the glories of Christ, and so we speak. Thank you again. In Jesus Christ, the Lord's name we pray.